Hoosiers. How about Forrest Gump? Um, Katniss Everdeen. Um, We love to go to the movies and root for the underdogs, don't we? Whether it is the 300 Spartans facing off against over a million Persians at the Battle of Thermopylae, whether it is um, the underdogs from average Joe's gym on a dodgeball court facing off against the evil purple cobras. We love to root for the underdogs. Um, There's something bewitching. There's something enchanting about the story of the underdog. My all-time favorite um, is, uh, as far as fictional underdog characters, is Frodo Baggins. Uh, Frodo Baggins is Tolkien's hero in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He is a hobbit, a halfling, um, a toy human, a miniature-sized version of a human being. He is an interesting hero because he has uh, below-average strength, average intelligence, I suppose, but an uncommon heart and a commitment to see his mission through. You see, all of the world is depending on this hobbit. He must take the ring of power and destroy it in the fires of Mount Doom so that the hordes of darkness and the evil dark wizard Sauron will be destroyed and the world will be delivered from the shadow of their oppression. And it is all up to him and a few of his friends. At the beginning of the journey, he has this conversation with Aragorn. If you're not familiar with the story, this is a brave and good knight who will eventually rule as the king. Um, and Aragorn is talking with Frodo, and Aragorn says, Frodo, are you, are you frightened? Frodo says, yes. Aragorn says, not nearly frightened enough. I know what hunts you. I know what hunts you. The odds are long for the hobbit from the shire. The journey will be a long one, and a powerful dark enemy will hunt him every step of the way. A little further in the journey, Frodo is sharing some of his self-doubts and some of his concerns with this beautiful elf queen, Galadriel. He says to her, I cannot do this alone. She says, you are a ring bearer, Frodo. To bear a ring of power is to be alone. Frodo said, I, I know what I must do. It's, it's, just, it's just that I'm afraid to do it. She gazes into his eyes and she says, even the smallest person can change the course of the future. Like that. Even the smallest person can change the course of the future. And Frodo in the story does, does just that. Spoiler alert. Okay. I mean, yeah, he destroys the ring of power. And the world is delivered from the evil hordes and the orcs and the evil sorcery of Sauron. And Aragorn, the rightful king, rules on the throne of Gondor. But these are the stories of the underdogs. These are the stories that enchant us. The common individual facing the impossible situation. But because that individual, that man or that woman, refuses to quit 
refuses to give up hope, that individual triumphs. So this week we begin a series about this amazing cast of characters, the underdogs of the Bible, right? And as you flip through the pages of the Bible, it is not hard to to see that the story of the underdog in Scripture is not the exception. It is the rule. That is the way God operates. And as Paul is talking to this this church of early believers in, in Corinth, he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, he says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things, the underdogs of the world to shame the strong. So our underdog story today begins in Judges chapter 6. If you have your Bible, you have your, your iPad or your phone, go to version. Go to Judges chapter 6 or find our live event this morning and follow along. The nation of Israel, as you roll into Judges chapter 6, is in a really desperate situation, a really dire situation. I suppose that if you were looking at it objectively from the outside, you would say that Israel was teetering on the brink of extinction. They were quite literally starving to death. You see, this powerful enemy, much superior in number, much superior in strength, the Midianites were coming into their land at will and taking their stuff. What they would do would be they would wait for the Israelites to plant all of their crops. And then right when the crops were ready to be harvested in, to to be harvested, they would roll in and they would pick the place clean. They would take all of the grain. They would steal whatever sheep and donkeys and livestock they could find. And they would leave the Israelites with nothing. Dark time. Judges 6, 5 to 7 says this. They, the Midianites, came up with their livestock, their tents, like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. They got themselves into this situation because they had turned their backs on God. They had bowed their knees to pagan deities. And so the Lord lovingly sent discipline to turn them back to his heart. And that discipline was in the form of the Midianites. And when the situation got so incredibly desperate, they had nowhere else to turn. Finally, they bowed their knees to the one true God. They cried out to Yahweh, and he heard their cry. He sent them a superhero. He sent them an action hero by the name of Gideon. He will be Gideon, the writer of wrongs, the deliverer of God's people. But quite honestly, in Judges chapter 6 and even in chapter 7, Gideon doesn't look like much of a superhero. When we encounter Gideon for the first time in the pages of Scripture, he is threshing grain in a wine press. You're thinking, A, what is threshing grain? B, what is a wine press? If you know what threshing grain in a wine press means, you think, what a coward. The deal is normally you would take your grain and you would thresh it on top of a, of a, of a hill. You needed lots of space to efficiently 
thresh grain, to separate wheat from chaff. In this case, this guy is so scared of the Midianites that he is threshing grain in a wine press. It is like rather trying to mow your yard with tweezers, okay? But he doesn't want them to see him. So he hides away and he threshes grain in a wine press. This is the hero of our story. Fear, I guess, inspires a certain form of, of, of creativity, um, but it's not always that healthy. At this moment, as Gideon is, is, is hiding away in fear, threshing grain in a wine press, an angel of God appears to him. And in chapter 6, verse 12, the Lord said to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. God has heard the cry of his people, and you, Gideon, are the answer to their prayers. <laughs> now, Gideon has got to be thinking here. I mean, we know he's thinking this because we see it play out. Me? Mighty warrior? <laughs> The guy who's hiding out up here, trying to stay away from the Midianites as much as possible. So Gideon decides, okay, um, cool that you think I'm a mighty warrior, love that. But let's, let's talk this through a little bit. And he's got his talking points. Essentially, he says, point one, let me just make this comment to you. Point one, God has abandoned us. God has left the building. God may be with the Midianites, certainly not with us. God may have done great things in the past, right? Plagues against Egypt, opened the Red Sea, may have done all this stuff. He's not doing it now. God has abandoned us. And here's this little dialogue, right, in, in, in verse 13. He, he says, if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us. Have you ever asked that question? Look, I'm a Christian. Read the Bible. I pray. I go to church. If God is with me, what's the deal? What's the deal with me being unemployed? If God is with me, what's the deal with the inspector who just found a crack in my foundation that's going to cost $30,000 that I don't have? If God is with us, why can't we conceive a child to bring to baby blessing? God with us? Angelic visitor? I think not. Point number two, talking point number two. So God's abandoned us. Point number two... Um, I'm not a hero. <laughs> right, if, if, if there is some plan that no one can see for God to deliver us, I'm not the guy. I am not this mighty warrior. I mean, call me a mighty warrior is like confusing Seinfeld and Schwarzenegger. Judges chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength, and I love this phrase, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon asked, 
How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. I'm not a hero. I am the runt of the litter, and the litter isn't real impressive to start with. I'm the weakest of the clan. My clan is not that impressive. Um, First mission, though, let's start with something small. Instead of taking on all of Midian, the Lord sends him to destroy um, this local shrine to Baal and this local Asherah pole, another another, uh, worship center to a pagan god. Um, Okay, except that this is kind of the awkward part. The altar to Baal and the Asherah pole were built by Gideon's father. They belonged to his family. But God wants him to start by going and knocking that over. Before God can work with them, the idols have got to go. Now, lest we think, and he does this. That's the good news. He obeys, he goes, he tears all that stuff apart. That's the good news. Uh, but lest we think he is transformed overnight into this courageous, mighty warrior, the Bible tells us this in Judges 6, 27. Gideon took 10 of his servants, did as the Lord told him, amen, hallelujah. But because he was afraid of his family, so we know he's afraid of the Midianites, he's also afraid of dad. Because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night. Rather, than in the daytime. Threshing grain to hide from the Midianites, tearing down the altars at night, scared of his family. Again, not much of a, of a superhero. And then I appreciate this about the story. I mean, Gideon's like, okay, maybe you are calling me to do something, but then again, this could be a psychotic delusion. So let's, tell, let's figure this out for sure, before I go up against all of those Midianites that none of us can even count, right? So, and you remember this part of the story, probably the fleece, right? The fleece, not a fleece jacket from Kmart, but an actual like sheepskin. He lays on the ground and he says, okay, God, let's, let's do this, right? Tomorrow morning when I wake up and I come out here, if it's your will that I really lead your people against the Midianites, May the ground all around the fleece be totally dry, just dry as a desert. And may the fleece be miraculously sopping wet. And you know what happens. Wakes up the next morning. Sure enough, um, that fleece is soaking wet. Well, God, don't be angry. Okay. But let's try another experiment here, just to be sure, all right? Let's, have, let's do the same thing, but this time, the fleece is dry, all the ground is wet. And again, God confirms that, and so he says, all right. We know one thing about him, he can recruit an army. I mean, it, it, the text does say the Spirit of the Lord is with him. I'm sure that helped. But he is able to, now when he recruits his army to face the Midianites, he is able to recruit a pretty impressive force, 32,000 Israelites, an army of 32,000 men. That's, that's great, but the text tells us the Midianites had 135,000. So 32 is nice, except you're still facing four to one odds, and Gideon 
doesn't much like that mathematics. So God is like, so got these 32,000 men. God is like, okay, Gideon, we have got to do something about this army. And Gideon's like, I know. <laughs> 32,000 of us. There's, we need at least 100,000 more. And God's like, no, that's not what I had in mind. Actually, you have too many men. You have to, so, so God tells Gideon, this is where it gets so interesting, right? God says, Gideon, I want you to stand before your men, and I want you to tell them that if any of them is afraid, they can go home. No punishment, no shame, just go home. So Gideonite, Gideon gets before his men, and I imagine it going something like this. I'm not sure if this is how it really happened, but I imagine he's up there, got his bullhorn, and he's like, all right, the Lord said, if anybody is afraid, you can, you can go home. Huh? If anybody's afraid, you can go home. What I know, we didn't understand you. And he's like, okay. If anybody is afraid, you can go home. And it is like the fourth quarter just ended at Cowboy Stadium. The place, I mean, there is a big leak on this army. We go from 32K to 10K in a matter of minutes. They are headed for the parking lot at this point. Same thing. God's like, I don't like this army. Gideon's like, I know, pretty small, right? God's like, no, too many men. And then we have the famous creek test. You remember the creek test? Uh, maybe you remember this when you were a kid. The creek test is, I want you to send these 10,000 guys down to the creek to get a drink of water. Those that get down on their knees and kind of like get down in the water, their knees and everything, they're out. Send them home. Those that pick up the water and then lap it like a dog, they're in. Now, you may have heard it explained thusly. This is like Navy SEAL tra training in ancient Israel. We have got to separate the men from the boys. We've got to find out who the real fighters are. And so, obviously, the 300 that, that stand on their feet and that pick up the water, they're alert. They're trained. They're not going to be easy prey like those that get on their knees. They could just be, look, guys, this is between me and you. Don't leave this room, okay? Preachers say some strange stuff sometimes, right? Preachers, can, preachers like to, at times, take some of the unreasonable parts of the Bible and try to make them reasonable. The problem with this interpretation is not that it's only crazy, but that that interpretation of this story is actually the opposite of what the story is teaching us, right? This is not a strategy of God to make the army stronger. This is intentionally designed to make the army weaker, now, how do I know that? Well, the text says it, and that's always helpful, right? <laughs> the text just, just 
says it. In fact, here, here's what it says. Judges 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, um, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. The idea here is I've got to get an underdog. Everybody has to know it was not the army. And if you think the army is weak, how about arming them with like torches and trumpets, right? That's what they got. They don't get swords. They don't get bows and arrows. They don't get javelins. They don't get spears. They get trumpets. This is about weakness. This is about God needing an underdog so that his glory and power can be seen. That night, though, God does a beautiful thing for Gideon. With all of his self-doubts and worries, God knows that Gideon needs, needs a word of encouragement. And so Gideon and Pura, his friend, in the wee hours of the night, they sneak down on the edges of the Midianite encampment. And as they're hiding there in the bushes and brambles at the edge of the camp, they hear one Midianite soldier telling his buddy about a dream. Woke up and I had this dream. Kind of a weird dream, honestly. There was a loaf of bread rolling down toward our camp. It was, it was like barley bread and it was rolling down the hill toward our camp. And when it hit the tent of Midian, it rolled right over it. The tent collapsed. Here's what I think it means. You know that guy Gideon we've been hearing about? The general of the Israelites? Gideon is going to come in here with an Israelite army and he is going to smash all of us. And Gideon hears this conversation. And Pura hears this conversation and Gideon's like, that's what I needed. This is a confirmation of my calling. I believe now that God will give us the victory. And so he divides his 300. Remember, went to, from 32,000 to 300. Went from 4 to 1 odds to 450 to 1 odds. Divides them into three groups with their torches covered by clay pots and trumpets. And he breaks them into three groups, and he surrounds the Midianite camp. And what they do is to break the clay pots, exposing the torches, and then with a roar, they yell in unison as loud as they can, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Interesting side note, they have no swords, all right? But that's what they're yelling. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. The effect is incredible. With all of the racket, the shouting, the trumpeting, and then kind of waking up all groggy and seeing their camp surrounded by torches, the Midianites assume they are about to be annihilated by Gideon and this massive army of Hebrews. And so they began running around like crazy in the darkness. And I love, this may be my favorite verse of the story. Judges 7, 21, it says, All the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. Running away, crying like babies. 
In some circumstances, they don't know what's going on and it's totally dark and they assume they're being attacked by this massive army. So in some circumstances, they pull out their swords and they actually start hacking at one another. Other circumstances, some of them escape, headed for the border with Midian, trying to get to their homelands, and they are cut down by Israelites along the way. Their two commanding officers, the two leaders of the Midianites, are captured, killed, and beheaded. And Gideon learns that even the smallest person can change the course of the future. Even the runt of the litter can be a mighty warrior if his life is in God's hands. Chalk one up for the underdogs. The result is that Midian leaves Israel alone for a very long time. They are freed not only from Midian, they are free. They are also freed from oppressive, false ideas. Thought about that when you read the story? They are freed from false ideas about Asherah poles, altars to Baal, things that cannot save. They're freed from that, and they're freed to know God really does hear their prayers. God really does love them. They really are God's people. And they really can accomplish great things if they have faith in God. Back to the story of Frodo Baggins. Frodo Baggins and his comrade, his best friend, who was his gardener back in the Shire, Samwise Gamgee, they are on their journey to destroy the ring of power. And there come various points. At one moment here, there is a point of despair for Frodo when he sees the enormous size of the task that they have been called to accomplish and their own comparative lack of strength to the task. And Sam knows that his traveling companion needs to hear some encouraging words. And he gives one of my favorite movie speeches of all time. Frodo says to Sam, I can't do this, Sam. Sam reminds them that they, reminds Frodo, they are part of a bigger story. He says, I know, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But here we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come and the sun will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. And even if you were too small to understand why, they meant something. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't because they were holding on to something. And Frodo asked him, what are 
we holding on to, Sam? Sam said, there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. With those words, Frodo found strength for his journey, and they continued on, and they finished their mission. This morning, do you feel like you are without hope? Do you feel like you are in a place of despair? Do you feel like the odds are stacked against you? Do you feel like the challenges you face are greater than the strength you have? Do you feel like you are too weak to manage the obstacles you are up against? And maybe this morning despair has gained the upper hand. For that reason, I want to close with Paul's Holy Spirit inspired speech to you. Originally, it was the Romans, but it's to all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. And think about the context, right? The church in Rome. In Rome. The church in the belly of the beast. In the heart, in the center of the most powerful oppressive force on the planet. He writes these words, Christians, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither, think about these words, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That deserves an amen. And I believe that when the Holy Spirit used the pen of Paul, he used it to point the eyes of believers toward their God. I believe that this is a passage not about telling God how big our problems are, but this is a passage about telling our problems how big our God is. This is a passage for the underdogs. So fill this out quickly. This is in your bulletin this morning. This really quick. We're going to take about 45 seconds on this. Just a few takeaways from that speech, from that inspired 
dialogue of Paul. First, turn your gaze upwards. First, according to this passage, God is for me. God is for me, and he has proven it by giving his son on my behalf. If God is for us, Paul asks, who can be against us? You may feel abandoned. You may feel outnumbered. You may feel like you don't have a chance. You may feel that God is not for you. The Holy Spirit says God is for you. And what more could he have done to prove that to you than to give his son for you? Second thing, God has dealt with my sin and shame problem. God has dealt with my sin and shame problem. Obviously, they were wrestling with these feelings of of shame and regret over the past. (laughs) Paul says, look, who is he that condemns? If God says you're made right, if Jesus is interceding for you, who cares what everybody else says? And then the third thing, God's love for me is unshaken by the challenges I face. God's love is unshaken by the challenges I face. I mean, he lists everything from angels and demons to life and death to, to hardships. And he says, in, in all of this, verse 37, we are more than conquerors. In all of this, we are more than conquerors. So this morning, you and Gideon, I believe you and Gideon have a lot in common. He may have seen himself as the runt of the litter, but God saw him as a mighty warrior. This morning, you may be facing challenges that seem too great for you. But God puts his hands on your shoulders. And he says, you are more than a conqueror. Take heart. God loves to use underdogs just like you.